Welcome to Your Voice First Podcast, Flow State Edition, a podcast designed to help you focus on finding your voice. And I'm your host, Sweets, here to provide the voice talks for your work. So here's how this podcast works. I'll provide 30 minutes of uninterrupted voice talks, after which point, I'll start talking again, which will be a reminder for you to stand up, stretch, maybe point your eyes at something other than a screen. Just take a quick break. After the five minutes are up, I'll provide another 30 minutes of voice talks. Hopefully, by the end of this show, I've helped you accomplish 60 minutes of deep focused work. Credit for this podcast format goes to Bobby Light in the Flow State podcast. If you'd like to accomplish more than 60 minutes of work, you can play each Flow State episode on repeat or create a playlist of several episodes. This works because the intro and outro of each episode combines for a total of five minutes, allowing you to stack your pomodoros. To help you get started, here's a voice talk called AMA with Kathy Pearl, head of conversational design outreach at Google, presented by VoiceFlow. Enjoy. Thank you guys so much for joining in. Uh, We have the lovely head of conversation design outreach at Google today, Kathy Pearl. Uh, We're so excited to hear all of the new announcements that you have and to hear about the evolution that you've seen on the conversation design uh, role so far. So welcome for everybody who hasn't sat on one of these webinar series before. Uh, These are hosted by VoiceFlow. Our goal is to make it easy for anyone to design, prototype, and build voice apps, no matter where you are and no matter how large your team is. And we make it easy for teams to collaborate in real time, to leave feedback, to build together, and ideally create a one-stop shop to centralize all of your voice experiences. Um, and are ultimately working with communities like this to democratize conversation design and development for just about anyone. And in this series, we're trying to tackle a bunch of different things from interviewing thought leaders to highlighting creators and their stories to connecting business minds and futurists and also ultimately growing with this lovely community of voice enthusiasts. We wanna make sure that right now we're able to level up all of the connections that you guys have to make the space even bigger and even more powerful as we continue to grow. So let's get started. Um, I'm today's host. My name is Emily. If you haven't met me, I am the head of growth at VoiceFlow. Um, and I am super excited to quickly introduce our featured guest today, Kathy Pearl. Um, would you like to give us a quick little spiel? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? That's very, it's a deep question. Um, yeah, so um, I am, am a conversation designer who has been working on speech recognition technology for about 20 years in different formats um, from phone systems to apps and now at Google and the Google Assistant. Um, it's been a really interesting journey to see where the technology has has gone um, and I'll, I'll get into that with a few slides. But um, yeah, I'm sorry we couldn't all be here together in person, but excited that we can still do this kind of thing virtually. So thanks a lot for having me on. Awesome. Thanks so much. So as we get started, Kathy's actually going to kick things off with um, a lightning talk. So if you can go ahead and share your screen. Perfect. Excellent. So I will just kick off. I've only got like four slides, um, so this is pretty short. But in the theme that Emily was talking about, where it's like, what, what has changed for conversation designers? Um, of course, you got to go back to uh, the, the mid-90s when speech recognition first became mainstream mainstream on automated phone systems. I used to work for a company called Nuance that builds, builds IVRs and these kind of things. Um, and it was kind of the first chance for regular people to experience speech recognition. And I want to tell one story about that, um, that time, which some of you may have 
heard me talk about before, but um, Nuance was one of the first companies to make IVRs and or speech IVRs. And the first client they launched was the financial company, Charles Schwab. And you could call up the system and the only thing you could do was get stock quotes. That's it. You could say IBM or AT&T or whatever and get a quote. And the interesting thing um, I think is interesting is they knew this would obviously save money because before you had to call a human to get a stock quote. People weren't really on the internet yet and things like that. Um, but the thing that, that they found is that the heaviest, um, you know, highest trading sort of people getting stock quotes, you used to call their broker at Schwab maybe once or twice a day. But when they were able to call the automated phone system, they called it dozens of times a day because it wasn't that they couldn't have done that. Technically, they could have called their broker as many times as they wanted. But they didn't because it was like I'm bothering somebody. It's a human. When they could make it a call to the computer, they didn't feel that anymore. It was kind of an unexpected side effect to the technology they hadn't really realized. Um, fast forward to the present. Obviously, things have changed um, in a lot of ways. Some things haven't changed, but speech recognition has had massive improvements, of course. Um, we no longer need to handwrite every single grammar. Um, I used to be writing uh and um and please uh, in my yes-no grammars. It was a very manual process. That being said, um, natural language understanding is still requires a lot of manual labor. It's not all automated by any means. And of course, the other great innovation are the far field microphones. Um, when people talk on the phone, you know, you've got a unidirectional mic, you know who is speaking. It's a lot easier to do that um, speech processing. When it's just, there's a bunch of people in the room, it's like, is that someone talking? Are they talking to me? It adds a whole layer of complexity. And I'm still astonished, honestly, when I can talk and have my, my smart speaker actually hear me. Um, in terms of conversation design, now when I started, there was no such title as conversation designer. That's a pretty new thing. We used to call ourselves VUI, voice user interface designers, um, because it was all voice back then. Now, over time, it's evolved to the term conversation designer because now you might be designing for voice and text. Um, and all these different things are part of conversation design, and so it's kind of evolved. But in terms of, um, of responsibilities, when I worked at Nuance, we wore a lot of hats as WUI designers. I would meet with clients and get requirements. I would write prompts, flows, 300-page uh, dialogue design specifications. I would do usability testing. I would do traversal testing. I would handwrite grammars, um, even do some tuning where we got data back and would tweak all the parameters in the recognition engine. Now that's changed a lot for, for most folks. Um, if you're at a small startup, sometimes you are wearing a lot of those hats still, but at a bigger company like Google, it's much more specialized. People are often either just doing design or they're just working on natural language or they're just working on TTS. Um, but people, um, a good conversation designer should really still try and understand the technology. How does the actual speech recognition work? It's still really important to have that knowledge in the back of your mind when you're designing. Um, and also, um, as in this picture of this, here's this guy, he's chopping away and he's using his smart display, which we call voice forward, a voice forward device. Meaning everything, even though it has a screen, you should be able to do everything with that device, hands-free. So now a conversation designer doesn't have to just do voice only. They've also got to be able to do multimodal, voice only, voice forward, intermodal like the mobile phone, even like the car or the watch. So there's a sort of broader um, skill set that is required. Um, in terms of some stuff that's going on lately, uh, obviously when, when COVID first started happening, um, we really had to scramble because people were really hungry for information and we had to really ramp up our our turnaround time to be able to add new information. And um, we added some things like you can ask for, you know, what's the latest coronavirus news um, and get updates and things like that. Uh, you can, we also built some things uh, like, hey G, help me wash my hands um, to help kids and, and adults <laughs> kind of, you know, know how long 20 seconds or 40 seconds are when you're, when you're washing your hands. So we've been um, trying to react and get ahead of all those types of queries that are coming at us, you know, fast and furious. Finally, the last thing I just want to mention is what I'm kind of feeling very passionate about these days, which is uh, feeling like voice technology is finally maturing enough to really help people who need it the most. Uh, for example, last year, Google launched uh, Project Euphonia. So speech recognition has improved a lot, but it still doesn't work for everybody. And particularly, maybe some people who may have things like ALS or they've had a stroke and their voice is hard for speech recognition engines to understand. 
Project Euphonia seeks to fix that and build those, those models that can help people um, kind of, you know, who would benefit the most by being able to use their voice to do things. Um, and then lastly, there's another app we released last year called Live Transcribe, which does, as you might think, as you speak, it shows what you're saying on the screen, which is a great tool for people who are deaf or hard of hearing. So I'm really excited to see those types of things develop. Um, and that's all I have. Okay, awesome. So you kind of mentioned this and you started your career a while back originally in IVR. Um, and I, I think you touched a little bit already on VUI designer, but as of right now, do you consider yourself more on the conversation designer side? Do you still see elements of that VUI or how has that changed over the years? I definitely uh, go by conversation designer now. And again, I think that's because Although certainly a large portion of my job is still voice and voice only uh, devices. Um, I really want um, for people to understand that if you're building, for example, for something like the Google Assistant, which is a complex ecosystem that has all these different surfaces, a conversation designer should not restrain, you know, um, constrain themselves to the voice only experience, which should be thinking more broadly about what is this conversation like when it's on a smart display? What is it like when I'm on my phone when somebody might switch between speaking and then they're tapping and then they're typing and to me all those things are part of the conversation you're having with the google assistant so a conversation designer um, will want to have that that different broader skill set um, there are certainly folks out there who are doing voice only for example if you're working on phone systems and um, i think you know you call yourself a conversation designer or a voice des designer whatever you're more comfortable with but um, i think conversation designer uh, encompasses more of, of the broader things people do now Awesome. I think we've definitely seen a huge trend in more and more people adopting these types of titles. I know your LinkedIn's probably flooded with people who've been updating and getting more of these job positions, um, but it's really exciting to kind of see where that's going. Next up, um, in terms of the conversation design workflow, this is something that's kind of continued to evolve and starting to structureize across different teams right now. What's the first step that you would suggest in a conversation design workflow? So um, if anyone has, has seen me give a talk before, you'll probably know the words that are going to come out of my mouth next, which uh, are sample dialogues, um, which are really one of the key components in a conversation designer's toolkit. And for anyone out there who might not be familiar with sample dialogues, you can think of it like a movie script. Um, it's potential pathways uh, through your conversational system. Um, and you, you, you just write it down. You write, you know, what might the user say? What might the computer say? What might the user say? Whether you're doing a voice uh, or a text, either way. Um, and each one of these individual sample dialogues, I get this question a lot, is just one possible pathway. You're not thinking about like, oh, they could say these 10 things here or whatever. It's just, it's just one path at a time. But the great thing about sample dialogues are it's really low fidelity. It's very easy for people to understand, like getting stakeholders involved if you're just throwing around use cases. Um, and what we recommend is once you've written a sample dialogue, even if it's for a text bot, read it out loud. And especially read it out loud where somebody playing the user is not someone who wrote it or is familiar with it. And you'll be shocked at how many things right out of the gate you find problems with. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't think someone would say that. We can't handle that. Or, oh, this is something that's interesting. We can add to that. So absolutely recommend to write sample dialogues. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be a great writer. It's just a great way to get your ideas out there and start um, finding the, the, goods and, the good and the bad parts. Yeah, I think uh, a comparison that we always make internally is always when we're writing out dialogue, sometimes there's a difference in between writing to sound smart versus writing to actually be heard. Um, and I don't know if you've ever like read out loud an essay that you spent way too much time editing versus <laughs> actually a text message, but that's always the, the early stages or a piece of advice that we've always been given. In terms of the roles of trying to build out now how teams are being structured at these companies, what are kind of the ideal SWAT team roles that you think of when forming a voice team? I think if, if, if you're lucky enough to have multiple conversation designers on your team, which I know a lot of companies are lucky if they even get one, um, but if I got to have a team of people, um, it's great to have someone who uh, definitely has a technical bent where they really get the speech recognition portion of it. They understand the basics of, of ASR and, and NLU and um, 
can really utilize that to remind the team of like, oh, this won't work because of this, this issue or things like that. So it's great to have somebody who's a, an expert there. It's great to have somebody who's just a really good writer. Um, like, like in my job, you know, I can write decent prompts, um, but sometimes, you know, when I want them to be better, I'll go to a colleague, like some of you may know my colleague, James Jangola, who co-wrote one of the first um, voice user interface design books. And I'll go to James and I'll be like, and make it better. And um, he'll just turn out these beautiful, beautiful prompts. Um, so some people just really have uh, a real skill for that. And it's great to have somebody on your team like that. Um, and then somebody who is skilled in multimodal design is great. Somebody maybe who has a little bit of a visual design background who can really help uh, with those conversational elements. Um, but I think the thing I'd say is most important is for a team to have um, the ability to communicate well, even when they disagree and um, to feel safe doing so and also the ability to compromise i think a lot of times as designers we are artists and we say this is my beautiful design and it must be so or it will be terrible but rarely does your design get built just the way you wanted it it's very rare um, and so it's really nice to be able to say okay i can compromise sometimes i'll get what i want sometimes i have to you know do it another way um, i think you'll be happier <laughs> that way and more successful awesome what are, so I, th I think thinking about roles and thinking about kind of what makes a team or someone in conversation, conversation design successful, there's the people, but there's also the tools and the technologies that they need to be made aware of. So kind of thinking through what are some of the core technologies that conversation designers need to get familiar with, what are some that are kind of top of mind? I think one again goes back to understanding speech recognition. I find sometimes um, I'll talk to people who come out of like a text chatbot world and they're very used to designing for text only. And, and I think some people have this idea that speech recognition is a solved problem. Like, oh, it's like 95% accurate. We're good to go. Um, and don't realize that we still actually have a lot of issues. Like people may not know that short utterances like yes and no are actually still pretty hard to, to handle sometimes or if you're building something where you need to collect an email address, it's pretty easy to, for most people to type out an email address, but boy, is that hard for a speech recognition system. Even names like my name, Kathy, is it with a C or a K? How's it gonna know? Um, and so, and also, um, I think people are used to looking at transcriptions to see, well, how's my system doing? But transcriptions really just aren't always accurate, and sometimes you miss uh, issues because you you can't hear what was actually said. So again, I just think having that that knowledge that speech recognition actually doesn't always work. Um, things like a voice assistant, you may say something, but it may not hear you speak. Um, so if you write a prompt that says, "Oh, you know, you should say something now," it's like infuriating to the user because it's like, "I did say something, you just didn't hear me." And so just having that that knowledge um, can really benefit your design. Awesome. So as and you, you kind of touched on this very lightly with multimodal, but as we're seeing more and more of a popularization in, let's say, like the Google Nest Hub, the Alexa Echo, all of these visual pairings with voice, how do you suggest that conversation designers start to adapt for voice first or voice forward experiences? One of the things we recommend most is if you're designing an ecosystem like Assistant where you, or Alexa, where you've got different different services, we say start with the voice first. Um, make your conversational experience go work really well and not surface. Um, and the reason is that it may be su surprising, but sometimes the voice only is the most complex or the most constrained. Um, and once you've figured out a lot of those details, you can move on. And then you you go to something like the smart display, and and you have to ask yourself, where are visuals going to enhance the conversation? Because a lot of times people are, who are working on the screen-based device, they come from a visual background. And so they say, I have a screen. Obviously, I have to do something with the screen. I got to fill it up. I got to make it look nice. But sometimes that can be overwhelming or unnecessary or distracting. So you need to think about, like, we've already got a conversation built. Where is it going to be that a visual will actually make it better as opposed to, oh, we have to fill the screen up with something? So, so really thinking about that, um, I think, is crucial. Awesome. And I think this is kind of, uh, well, for me personally, it was one of the very first things that I found out about you. Um, but you literally wrote the book on uh, Vui designers, and this is obviously 
plug, you need to check it out. <laughs> but <laughs> since that, since you wrote it, um, are there any revisions or anything that you've learned since that you would like to make for the book? Gosh, yeah, I definitely get asked sometimes like, oh, when are you going to make the second edition? And I kind of have this like, start kind of shaking and sweating, like a <laughs> flashback to writing the first book. Um, but actually this came up recently on Twitter. Somebody um, had posted something. We were talking about what, what does conversational mean? And um, then they pointed out that in my book, I had mentioned sort of a contrast between command and control conversational. And I realized that I've kind of shifted my thinking a bit since then in that I actually think now that command and control I'm going to bucket that under conversational system. It's a subset of what of of some, and this is a very philosophical debate that many people would be on both sides of. But if you think about like if I ask somebody, "Hey, can you can you close the blinds?" and they close the blinds and they don't say anything, did we just have a conversation? Some people say yes. I say yes. Some people say no. That's not a conversation. That's like a you know one way command. But I bucket those into part of human conversations and therefore I would say that command and control and computers are also. Anyway, so that's just one example where somebody pointed out something where I think my, my thinking has shifted. I'm sure there are other places in the book where in the last few years things have evolved a bit. Um, so yeah, there's definitely things I would change, but I'm sort of afraid to, to even, <laughs> even start down that path. Are there any resources that you would recommend um, outside of your own book or any place that you go to uh, to learn more about the space? For sure. Um, and hopefully we can share some of these links. But um, there's a few a few places um, like on Twitter. I recently posted um, a couple links of articles that I saw recently. One was um, a summary of uh, conversation design courses that are available right now. There used to be kind of no formal courses you could take, but now there's multiple ones where you can sign up and learn online and, and even sometimes get a certification. certification. Um, another link I posted was about um, podcasts. There's tons of great podcasts out there about voice that you can learn from, um, lots of great videos. Um, on my website, kathyperl.com, I have an FAQ section where I also link to some other books that are interesting. Some books that aren't just about, say, you know, voice design, but are about human conversation, um, like uh, Talk, The Science of Conversation um, by Elizabeth Stocko, and um, uh, How We Talk. Um, these are some great books that just help you understand how humans talk, which really I think is beneficial to when we design for computers. Um, and I also have a link to an article I wrote called How to Become a Conversation Designer, which again has some, some links and ideas for people who are looking to get started or, or looking for more resources. But the main thing I say to people um, is uh, the best way to learn is to try and to, uh, you know, to make a blog for VoiceFlow, to use a tool like VoiceFlow that lets you just experiment. You don't have to be able to code to get something up and running. You can put it out there. You can get feedback. You will learn so much so fast. And I think that's the absolute best way uh, to get started. Like 100% agree, not just because you plug VoiceFlow, but just in general. Uh, I know myself and our team greatly like we'll greatly started to learn and uh, really expedite how we think about the product by diving in, by building, uh, by making it accessible for anybody. So uh, absolutely love that answer. Um, and this kind of, you, you like literally have an article for this, which I will definitely <laughs> plug for this after. But let's say if you were to look back on Kathy 20 years ago, starting out, let's say today, uh, what would you do now? What piece of advice would you give yourself as someone entering in the space right now? Oh gosh, um, that's a good question. One thing, one thing that you're making me think of is like when I when I worked on automated phone systems, um, it was a lot of fun and really interesting. I'd always loved the idea of talking to a computer, so I love that aspect. But what we were building was often not what real people necessarily wanted, you know, calling an IVR and, and having to say operator six times, really not <laughs> a fun experience for anyone. And I kind of got um, turned off of the whole technology for a while, you know, in, in the early mid 2000s, I was like, I'm done with this. Speech recognition isn't really you know, helping people. It's just helping businesses save money. And I, I tried to turn my career into something else, but I got sucked back in. Um, and now I feel like we have so many other opportunities to use voice technology for lots and lots and lots of different things. 
phone systems are still useful. They're still out there. Um, but now, you know, the smart speakers and things like that. And then, like I mentioned, having things like live transcribe and tools to help people um, who maybe have mobility issues or they're visually impaired. And so I think what's great about starting nowadays is that you've got this whole world of things out there that you can do with, with, with speech recognition and natural language. Um, and it's just a, I think an awesome time to start this as a career because a lot of companies are realizing they need this. They might not know they need a conversation designer and maybe you can help them understand that that's what they, what they need. Um, but it's a great time to, to get started in this. I think that the, the interest around it, that coupled with just how much noise is in the space right now, it's, it's such an exciting time. And I know me personally, I'm so excited for it to be adopted even on the education level where more and more people are learning about it faster before they get into their early careers. I know that that would have been something awesome, at least uh, when I was back in school. And this is kind of, uh, it's a meaty question because it's covering a lot in a, a, tiny, a, a tiny slide, but what are some of the key milestones that you've seen, some transitionary wins or periods in voice over the last 20 years? And kind of to follow up on that, what do you think's next? What, what, what are we sitting <laughs> on right now? <laughs> Um, some of the key milestones in my mind are, um, you know, when speech recognition was first being created back in like the 1950s, uh, it was speaker dependent. So it would, you would train it for one person at a time. And even for many years, things like Dragon um, Dictate, Dragon Natural Speaking, still really benefited from personal training to, to recognize your voice. And so the move away from speaker dependent to speaker independent, which is what allowed speech recognition to be used on phone systems and things like that for the first time. So that was a huge milestone way back then. Um, then we moved into, in the early 2000s, statistical language modeling, which meant that, um, again, we didn't have to handcraft every possible expected utterance from callers, but could rely on, on more grouping and clustering of data. Then obviously the improved recognition models so we can just get back a chunk of what someone said and do things like keyword spotting or phrase spotting, um, which makes things much, much easier. And then of course, as we already, we already talked about a little bit before, the Farfield um, microphone arrays, which totally a game changer because now you don't have to be like right in front of whatever you're talking to, the unidirectional mic and only um, you know one speaker can have a lot going on. So I think those are some of the major milestones. Um, what's next? I mean, who knows? Uh, I think one thing that's certainly down the line, and there's prototypes out there right now, are the idea of um, sub-vocalization, uh, where you can speak to a voice assistant without anyone else hearing you. Because right now, that's something, even for me, when I'm out in public, I don't necessarily want to pull up my phone and talk to it, because I don't want everyone hearing what I'm saying. Um, and, uh, you know, there are things like at, uh, at MIT, there's the experiment you can look up called Alter Ego, where they demonstrate a prototype of this. Um, but I think that'll be a game changer because I know it's probably because I'm, I'm kind of old school, but I'm not like a super fast uh, typist on my phone. And there's a lot of times when I'd rather speak, but, but I don't. And I feel kind of encumbered by my phone because I can't communicate as fast as I want. But if I could do it with sub-vocalization, which by the way, Sometimes you'll see headlines that say, oh, you know, we're reading your mind now with these like things. And it's like, no, no, no. You are starting to form the words. It's just you're stopping right before the, the sounds actually come out of your mouth. So it's picking up on bone conduction and, and other micro signals that figure out what you're actually about to, to say um, and translating that to, to your device. Um, so I think that'll be a, a big one. That's super cool. Um, I absolutely like, can't even imagine what that would unlock for so many things. Um, uh, I know that there's a ton of, there's a ton of work and a ton of guesses in terms of all the ways that voice can continue to improve. And I, I hope that especially given how much light we've gotten in the voice space over the last few years alone, that it will only get expedited. Um, I'm personally excited for being able to access these things, not so awkwardly, uh, outside, so, at least when we all return. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, exactly. When we're all in the <laughs> office, if we're all in the office talking to our computer, that'll be so annoying, right? But if you don't have to hear people, then cool. Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, and same with the, the typing. I'm a fast typer, but 
I like to think that I come across more naturally when I'm speaking. And now I've gotten into this habit of recording myself whenever I'm trying to write an email or trying to write something and then typing it afterwards. Um, as Interesting. Process, just because I find like it comes across better now. Um, and hmm. um, maybe that's because I spend too much time talking to my, uh, my, various, <laughs> my various devices in my room right now. But uh, at least that, that's a trend that I've started to see even amongst other friends that I know in the space. Anyways, uh, we have so many questions <laughs> from the community, so I want to make sure that we get through as many as we possibly can. Um, one of the questions, and we'll, we'll go through this in uh, no particular order, so bear with us as we go through these, but uh, the first one that we see here is, what are recruiters looking for in conversation design portfolios, especially for new grads? And I'm also really curious, what does a conversation design portfolio even look like? And how, how do you prepare one of those? That is a really good question. Um, first, of course, I'll say, you know, I can't speak for all companies or recruiters, but for myself, what I would look for in a portfolio, what I do look for is, um, obviously, of course, a portfolio should represent some of the work you've done. Um, and as far as how do you represent that, especially if it's like a voice only experience, there's some different ways, but I like to see, um, I like to see process. I like to see like, um, we had this idea, or I had this idea, and here's my first thoughts about it. Like, here's a sample dialogue or a flow or something like that. And then I realized that's not going to work. And here's my revised flow. I love to see when people have insight or like, oh, here's an aha moment I had during my design process because nobody designs things perfectly from scratch. So when I see like a perfectly polished, finished mock or, or experience on a portfolio, I'm like, yeah, but how did you get here? Um, in terms of how do you represent this kind of stuff, there's some different ways. Um, one thing you can do, like if you're demonstrating something like an assistant action is you could just record a video of yourself talking to it or just audio. Um, so you could have a recording of an, of an interaction. Um, and again, showing things like sample dialogues or flows or other artifacts of your project are also really useful. Another thing I advise people often is um, there's always a range of, you know, some people have don't have a lot of experience. Some people have built like 50 things. I like people to highlight fewer things than more things and go deeper into a few things, like go deep into one thing you've designed. And again, any aha moments you had or pivots you took, um, I find that really helpful because it feels like I get to know your, your problem solving um, a little bit more. If I have to go to a portfolio and look at 15 different things to get a feel for what you do, I, it's, it's going to be too, too challenging. Just remember, people who look at your portfolios probably don't have a ton of time. And so you want to pack a lot in to, um, you know, uh, things. So you might pick like three projects, if you can, that are different and, and expose different areas of your expertise um, and highlight those. I also get asked a lot like, well, I can't get a job because I don't have any experience and I can't get any experience because I can't get a job. Um, so in those cases, again, you can still build a portfolio with your sample projects. Again, like if you use voice for something and you make a, a prototype, you can use that in your portfolio. You don't have to use just stuff that was launched um, or whatever. So that's a great way to get started, even if you don't haven't yet had the job as a conversation designer, but you want to show off some of your skills. That was Kathy Pearl on what she looks for when hiring for conversational design roles. For this five-minute break, we're going to talk about using our voice in auto-suggestion to shape our subconscious into the people we want to become. The book we're going to look at today is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Here it is. Faith is a state of mind, and it can be induced through auto-suggestion. One comes to believe whatever one repeats to oneself, whether the statement be true or false. Each of us is what we are because of the dominating thought we permit to occupy our minds. Here's the five-step self-confidence formula. One, I know that I have the ability to achieve the object of my definite purpose in life. Therefore, I demand of myself persistent, continuous action towards its attainment, and I hereby promise 
to take such action. I realize the dominating thoughts of my mind will eventually reproduce themselves in outward physical action and gradually transform themselves into physical reality. Therefore, I will concentrate my thoughts for 30 minutes daily upon the task of thinking of the person I intend to become, thereby creating in my mind a clear mental picture of that person. I know, through the principle of auto-suggestion, that any desire I persistently hold in my mind will eventually seek expression through some practical means of attaining the object. Therefore, I will devote 10 minutes daily to demanding of myself the development of self-confidence. I have clearly written down a description of my definite chief aim in life. I will never stop trying until I have developed sufficient self-confidence for its attainment. I fully realized that no wealth or position can long endure unless built upon truth and justice. Therefore, I will engage in no transaction that does not benefit all whom it affects. I will succeed by attracting the forces I wish to use and the cooperation of other people. I will induce others to serve me because of my willingness to serve others. I will eliminate hatred, envy, jealousy, selfishness, and cynicism by developing love for all humanity because I know that a negative attitude towards others can never bring me success. I will cause others to believe in me because I will believe in them and in myself. I will sign my name to this formula, commit it to memory, and repeat it aloud once a day with full faith that it will gradually influence my thoughts and actions so that I will become a self-reliant and successful person. I really like the repeating it aloud once a day with full faith. It will gradually influence my thoughts. This isn't some magic spell you repeat once. And with anything, it takes consistent, persistent focus and desire to manifest a change on any scale and whether it's true or false whatever you repeat to yourself especially what you repeat to yourself out loud eventually you come to believe so knowing that you can be at the mercy of social media or negative thoughts or the influences of others around you and that can be the reality that you come to believe to be true alternatively you can take it into your own hands and intentionally manifest the person you want to become through your words now back to kathy awesome um as you've kind of seen a bunch of different conversation designers take a stab at what a voice experience looks like, what are some of the top three mistakes that companies make when they start with voice applications? I think one of the top ones is you assume anyone using your system really knows what it's going to do. Cause you know, we're so uh, deep into whatever we're building. And so you, you, you have this very like open-ended, like, Hey everybody, here's my, here's my action or my chat bot or whatever, you know, how can I help you? And it's like, <laughs> I have no idea you can help me. What can you do? And, and you, your user quickly falls off this cliff where they've typed or said something that you just can't handle. So I think people love the idea of having these like super conversational open-ended stuff and that's great and all, but most companies can't actually build that. So it's okay to have a fairly directed thing like, you know, uh, welcome to, you know, Kathy's trivia game, uh, you know, um, do you want to play easy or hard or, you know, a very direct question. That's like, get them, get the user to have a successful interaction right off the bat with a simpler question, um, before you kind of throw them into like, here's all the things you do. So I think being too open-ended and not explanatory enough is one thing. 
Another huge thing I still see in 2020 is just really poor air handling. Because again, you've got to know that people are going to say or type things that you did not plan for. It is just going to happen. And if you just go with your default, like, I didn't understand, please say your command again, you're, you know, you're doomed. <laughs> so really investing in, in that is something I still see people not doing. Um, and then finally, I think one thing I, I, I also still see is people um, write a prompt and they think, okay, I've asked the person for this question. They're obviously going to answer with something related, you know, a direct answer and and people often don't and and designers or builders think what's wrong with these users i told them what to say and they didn't say it come to terms accept <laughs> that humans don't just reply exactly the way you want but they're not going to say something bizarre out of the blue like if you say how many people uh in your reservation they're not going to say how tall is barack obama but they might say do you have outdoor seating perfectly legitimate question and you should be able to handle sort of those domain specific things that people say Awesome. Uh, a big topic that comes up in voice is discoverability and what will eventually become of voice SEO. What type of advice do you have or is there a formula right now that you know of uh, that can help with discoverability in voice? I agree. This is one of the biggest, biggest challenges out there. Um, it's really, really, really tough. And I don't think there's going to be a short term solution to this. Um, I think um, in terms of, I th there's different types of discoverability. Uh, there's discoverability about what can be done within your own experience, like within your own chatbot or within your own action or skill or whatever. And for that, there's some different strategies you can take um, where we have this idea of the just-in-time help, um, where you don't, for example, overwhelm your user with the 15 things you can do right out of the gate because they won't remember because it's not relevant to them at that time. But instead you look for like, if they do something that's related to another feature you have, if they complete that, that first half successfully, you might throw in a like, well, by the way, you know, you can also do related thing. And that's a, a better time for their brain to kind of absorb it. Um, but it's just, it's this huge problem right now because there's thousands of things these voice assistants can do and, and who knows what they are. And, and to get past that, we're gonna to have to get to the point where people can really say things in a huge variety of ways and still get to where they're going and not have to know like keywords to, to get somewhere. And that's slowly evolving, but I just, I think to me, that's kind of the area where, where this technology is kind of the most behind. Nice. Um, another question from a master's student at CMU. Uh, he says, my team's currently working on a voice interface um, and they're working on a program that's for the underserved. One of the challenges that they're facing is creating an interaction that conveys empathy. What are your thoughts on creating voice interfaces that convey empathy or are able to convey different types of emotion? That's, um, it's great that you're thinking about that. That is certainly very challenging because you really have to walk that line where um, sometimes you can say something and it, it can anger people because it's like, that's fake. You're not, you know, you're not really sorry that I feel bad today or whatever. Um, so you, you have to carefully walk that line where, um, like when I worked at a, a company on a health uh, virtual nurse avatar um, and we were in sensitive situations, one thing we found is that um, it's easier to show the empathy and the, and, and the emotion in, in positive areas. Like if they did really well on a particular health thing that week, you might say, great job. Um, and people were usually like, yeah, yeah, good. That's nice that it says that. Whereas if, you know, again, if you said something like, um, I'm really sorry that you're feeling bad, people, a lot of people would be like, no, you're not, you're a bot or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes what people can, can still make people feel better is, is acknowledgement. We know this about people. When someone is telling you about this difficult interaction they had with their boss, they don't want you to say like, well, here's what you should have done or, you know, um, things like that. They want you to say like, oh, it sounds like a hard day. And that's a, a much, I think, better line to walk because what you're doing is you're just basically validating what they said. You're not making a judgment. You're not saying how you feel about it. You're just saying, that's what happened to you. I'm here and I heard you. And that is powerful. And even when a bot does it, it can be powerful. So I think that's a little bit of a safer way to acknowledge a difficult situation or something without putting a judgment that the bot is having about it. Awesome. Um, 
Next question is from Nicole Merrill asking, what role do you see UX playing in conversation AI? Uh, and res with respect to that, there's a ton of questions on just other roles that already exist in other teams. How do they play in with the conversation design workflow? So I'm assuming by UX you're saying like a visual designer or an interaction designer or other folks like that who are working together with a conversation designer. Um, and in that case, that's a great question because that's something that's so relevant today. And the best teams, I think, and this is hard, but the best teams, I think, try to come up with collaborative tools and processes to help them work together. Um, because if you just say, well, okay, here's the voice designer's gonna do this and throw it over the wall. And now the visual designer's gonna do this and throw it over the wall. You, you really, there's a disconnect there. So that it's best if you can bring all the designers together early on, together to talk about the use cases and to go through the sample dialogues. Um, so everyone has an idea of what the conversation flow is gonna be like. And then ideally, you'll have a tool where you can share assets and um, have both the prompts and say the cards or whatever the visual assets are um, together so that even if maybe one person is working on the visual assets and one person on the prompts, they can still see what they look like when they come together and both sides will notice problems that might come up like that prompt does not go with what I created here in this in this asset or the or vice versa. Um, so tools and process again not easy at all but just knowing that um, working together early on um, is gonna help save pain later. What is the shortest answer you've given to the question, so what exactly is your job? <laughs> I should really have a better answer to this. Um, my shortest answer is not very short, which is I usually try to ground it and say, have you ever interacted with Siri or Alexa or the Google Assistant? I work on um, making those conversations better. I mean, that's still pretty short. So <laughs> uh, that's, that's still good. <laughs> Another question that we have in here right now, uh, I'm gonna kind of combine two. Um, what are some of the biggest unsolved problems that you see in conversation design right now? And are there any things that you imagine in the next few years that voice might be able to solve that it currently doesn't? So I think, again, discoverability is going to be my number one. Um, I think my number two is, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about like, hey, you've got to have great air handling. But let's be honest, that is a big time sink um, for designers and developers. Um, there's a reason that people often reuse generic ones because it's, it takes time. It takes, it takes effort. Um, so uh, I think there may be some strides hopefully soon um, where maybe what can be done is that maybe there there could be like a more auto-generated first pass at these more context-specific error handling prompts, and then a human maybe could just go back and, and review as opposed to having to handcraft them all. So I think hopefully uh, in the near future, we'll move towards a sort of a hybrid model where maybe portions of your design are auto-generated. And then again, you're still gonna need a human reviewer most of the time at this point to help with that. Um, so those are a couple things. I'm trying to remember what the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the question was. Uh, the end of the question was, are there any things in the next few years that you think voice will be able to solve that it currently isn't mm -hmm. today? So I guess say, those are the things I hope it would be able to solve some, some more because right now it's it's just expensive and, and time consuming to create new experiences um, because you do need like a conversation designer to design and you need a developer who has the time and resources to create those designs. Um, and it's just not super scalable. So a small company comes in and they want to build a really awesome voice experience and they don't have a conversation designer. You know, what, what do they do? And so it makes it hard to make it. There's no, you know, kind of um, WordPress type thing yet. I mean, I know that tools like VoiceFlow and stuff are really striving to make that happen, um, but it still takes a skill set to, 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 to think and craft the design. Uh, the next question uh, that's come up is around voice commerce. So we've spoken and we've seen a lot of interest around people being able to purchase using their voice or pe people being able to incorporate commerce into their designs. Do you think that this will become more and more of a popular topic? And is there anyone that's doing that really well right now? Hmm, this is definitely not my area of expertise. Uh, so I would say that I think we do have to come to a model for how conversational experiences can tie into, um, you know, revenue and things like that. Um, 
I think we're still very much in the early experimental stages of that and that I'm not sure anyone has figured it out. Certainly I know there are, are um, skills and actions like, you know, rain sounds and stuff um, that, that do end up being able to, to make money. But um, I think it's just such a new paradigm that we haven't figured it out yet. And, you know, thinking about something like if you're a brand, um, what does it mean to put your brand on voice? Maybe putting your brand on voice isn't necessarily like something that leads to a purchase, for example. Like let's say you sell shoes. Maybe your voice experience isn't to buy shoes because that's kind of a hard thing to do over voice only. Maybe instead you have this fun branded experience about your brand and shoes that someone does with voice that's fun that gets their mind thinking like, oh, now I want to go buy those shoes. I'm going to go on the website and, and buy them or something like that. So I just think there's like, ways that no one has really come up with yet to kind of fold in these experiences to the greater um, ecosystem of, of commerce. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I would not call myself an expert on that at all. That's totally okay. Um, this, I feel like you definitely are an expert in. Um, <laughs> the next question is, um, you've obviously tested out and you've seen a ton of actions being developed on Google. What are some of your favorites or some of the top actions that have really done well in terms of conversational design? Um, that's a, <laughs> I also feel like in a way that's a bit of a loaded question because I know whatever I leave out, people are gonna be like, what about this one? Um, but uh, for me, you know, things like the, the wait, wait, don't tell me quiz, I think is pretty neat because one of the reasons I think it's, it's so good is because it uses the real uh, voice actor, the real people on the show to do, to voice it, which it can be more expensive than using TTS, but to me that adds so much to it to make it a more compelling experience. Um, so certainly I think games and things that have, have, have made some interesting strides. Um, if I look at my own usage of my Google Assistant, however, um, my primary things are like the standard alarms and, and music, but I use it for answers all the time, every single day. Like last night I was, I was reading and um, you know, I just started asking questions about stuff I'm reading because um, I, I don't want to get out my phone or anything. Um, and I just find that absolutely invaluable. So, so I love those kind of things. We were also playing the game, Hey Robot, maybe some of you have heard of, um, which is super fun, where it's a, it's, a, it's a bunch of cards with words on them and you have to get your voice assistant to say the word on the card, like vampire or um, muffin. Oh my gosh, it was impossible to get it to say muffin. <laughs> You'd be really surprised at how, um, how challenging it is, but it, it helps you learn a lot about what these voice assistants can do. So if you um, haven't heard of it, check out Hey Robot, really fun game. Awesome, uh, the next question is from a graduate from Cognitive Science and Linguistics. Uh, they just said, I've started to dive into conversation design and I just finished my first project and I'm at the user testing phase. Aside from observation, I was wondering if you had any tips to help gauge whether users are succeeding or struggling. Yeah, I mean, most of the measurements I think to apply there are there's, there's task completion. So if, if they have to do a particular thing, whether it's whether it's playing a game, having a conversation, doing a bank transaction, um, whatever your markers are for like, okay, they successfully completed uh, level one or they successfully transferred money from A to B. Um, obviously task completion is a really important aspect. Other than that, you're looking at like, what is the no match rate? How many times did they say or type something uh, that it didn't handle? Um, no input, how many times did it appear that they said nothing or typed nothing uh, given the question? Um, Sometimes retention uh, is important. User testing is a little different, so it's harder to measure, but if you want something that people will come back to, you wanna find a way to say, like to be able to ask that or, or allow them to, to come back. Um, so those are the few things. There's also like qualitatively, there is uh, you know, the difference between yes, I succeeded and yes, that was a pleasant experience. So maybe that they successfully transferred money from A to B, but boy, they hated it. It was really painful. That's important information. Uh, so task completion alone is not necessarily all you need. Awesome. Uh, the next question is, how has turn-taking best practices changed between IVRs to voice assistants, given that voice assistants leverage wake words and also have visual cues? Do you recommend any resources to understand the latest and greatest on this space? 
Um, gosh, I, I don't think I have any turn taking resources specifically, except some of those books I talked about that are, that are on my, my FAQ page at kathypell.com um, that talk about human communication and turn taking that are fascinating. Um, that talk about things like, uh, if I ask you a question, like, can you give me a ride tomorrow and more than a second goes by, you're not going to answer me. You probably don't want to give me a ride. Um, so things like how long people pause between turns impacts voice assistance as well because if there's a latency in your voice assistant and they haven't responded your 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 lizard brain is thinking like oh the answer is going to be no or they don't you know something's wrong here um but one thing i will say about turn taking that i think is different between ivrs and things with visual um like when i worked at that company with the the virtual nurse avatar um, one thing we discovered actually even before that another company with recorded humans is that if you're looking at a face and there's a no match error, so the face asks you a question, you say something it doesn't understand. We found by accident, honestly, that if the, the face doesn't say anything, but just kind of keeps looking, you automatically realize as you would with the person like, oh, they didn't understand me. And you repeat, most people repeat themselves. And so with the visual cues, sometimes like a face or eyes, it's enough, um, that you don't have to actually explicitly say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand you, you know, please say that again, whatever. You just know it and you repeat yourself and like 80% of the time in that case, people would successfully move on. So there's some interesting aspects about the visual um, that make it so you don't have to be maybe as explicit about your no match. Um, another thing I think that's evolved a bit is we, we try to do sometimes very short reprompts. Um, so if you're like, you know, would you like this, this or that? Um, and the person says something instead of repeating the whole thing and I'm sorry, I didn't understand and blah, blah, blah. Just be like, oh, was that, you know, milk or dark chocolate and get back on track quickly. The next question, and I'm sure you have a ton of ideas around this, but how do you see the role of conversation designer evolving as the field starts to mature? I think, and, and I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I think that conversation designers tend to often have good systems thinking. And by that, I mean, they're often not just thinking about that individual prompt, but they're thinking about like, how does this tie in to the end to end? Like, where is the user? Are they in the kitchen chopping vegetables? Are they in the car? Are they on a walk? That that's, you know, the mindset that they're in. Um, what's, what's gonna happen uh, at the end when they get this information? Um, and I, I tend, and again, I'm biased, <laughs> but I tend to see that a little more in conversation designers sometimes than say a, a, a traditional visual designer. Um, and I think we should lean into that strength and become um, sort of leads on projects. So a project might have multiple designers, but maybe the conversation designer can also play the role sometimes of like the overarching, like I'm gonna make sure all the pieces are fitting together uh, and that the whole flow works well together. And so, um, I'd like to think that we can, we can build that as a strength. Awesome. Uh, the next question's around validation. So as you're building, how do you validate if the final product, whether it's bot or voice, has reached your goals after IT programming teams have done their job? Do you use a tool or is there a methodology for that? Um, certainly like at Google, we have our own sort of in-house tools, but, um, you know, there's other companies out there like Dashbot who can help, uh, do that type of measurement. But I think that the, the most important thing is to define your goals in the beginning <laughs> and not add them on at the end after you've already launched, because, um, it's, you can, we're all just sort of, you know, naturally biased to, to think about things differently, um, post launch than, than we are before we even get started, um, in you know, to our favor, to think of goals that are uh, in our favor. So number one, establish them early on. But number two, again, you have to think about your use case. For example, retention. Retention for certain things like a game might make a lot of sense. And if your users aren't coming back, that's bad. But you might build something where honestly, they use it once every six months and that is completely fine. Um, so you have to set that correctly. Also, sometimes I see people go down the path of looking at length of conversation, like, oh, if they had a long conversation, that means we, we were successful. Sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. It's only one, one aspect of it. Um, again, looking at no match rates, where are the places where, where we're failing the user the most? Uh, you look at a funnel of, you know, dropouts, how far do people usually get before they drop out and, and what's going on there? Why are they dropping out? Is that okay? Are we missing something? Um, and then again, if you can do qualitative and actually talk to people who've used it and say, 
what went well for you? Uh, were there any challenges? Things like that to find out not only could they be successful, but did they, was it a, a good experience as well? Great. And I think we only have time for one more question. Uh, this one I've seen so many tweets about since COVID. Uh, and I know that uh, you have a kid at home too, so I'm curious to hear your take. But uh, how do you feel about kids interacting with voice experience uh, interfaces compared to adults? Um, are, there, are there anything that's exciting or anything that stands out to you? Um, yeah, so my son is 12 now, but he's we've had smart speakers in the house uh, for, for years. Um, and it's been interesting watching him evolve with them. I think they're great for kids. Um, I know there's <laughs> people have different opinions, but um, well, there's a few reasons for that. One is um, watching my own son, I was shocked at how many things he would try that didn't even occur to me. Me, you know, I'm an expert in this field and he would be like, I'm going to try this. I'd be like, that's not going to work or whatever. And, and it would or whatever. And he was just really open to exploration, just trying whatever. And I think that's an awesome thing. And kids are more likely to have that than adults. Um, the other thing is it can give a kid um, a little more um, uh, influence in the house. So for example, when I was a kid, I had a boom box and I listened to the radio and I taped stuff off the radio and that was my music. We don't have that and it most, you know, a lot of households don't have that anymore. So the only music he could choose was what I or my husband chose. And once he was able to speak to the smart speaker and choose his own music, it opened up music to him in a way that wasn't there before. Um, and I loved to see that. Now that he's 12, when he's doing school at home, he uses his, he uses the Google Mini in the dining room for setting alarms to remind him of things, asking homework questions, uses it a lot. So um, the whole family uh, uses it. And um, I, I think it's pretty neat to watch kids and see how they interact. Yeah, I think that uh, we've seen so many like adorable videos ranging from like, like three-year-olds or four-year-olds who are just like asking the same question over and over and over again to uh, yeah. parents playing games with them for them even just occupying some time when you need a breather and you're locked at home. Um, it's really exciting to see that like genuine magical moment for kids who are experiencing an interface without the bias of what we have today. Yeah, and, and one other aspect I like about it is is the screenless nature of, of a smart speaker. Like, um, I haven't talked about at dinner, you know, we don't have devices, but we have questions, and now we can just ask uh, the voice assistant, and it joins the conversation, and, and it's not me like, okay, one sec, I'm just like lost in my phone forever. So I, I like that too. Um, yeah, so I think it's, you know, I've maybe heard a little bit too much Perry Grip and Weird Al at this point because he likes to listen to the same songs over and over, but... Overall, for, for us, it's been a real positive experience. Awesome. Well, I just want to say, like, thank you so much, Kathy. This has been really, really great. Is there any kind of, like, parting wisdom that you have before we wrap things up? <laughs> Beyond everything. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Like I said earlier, I just think it's a great time to be a conversation designer, even in this weird time in the world we're in. Um, I, I think there's so much opportunity out there and so many companies and people are, are realizing the importance of this role, um, there's more opportunities than ever. So, you know, go out there and build stuff. That was Kathy Pearl on how COVID-19 has created a lot of opportunities for creatives to enter the voice ecosystem. To end this episode, I'm going to share one more quote on the power of your voice in shaping your thoughts. This comes from one of the books Steve Jobs always recommended, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Here it is. Master told me shortly after he had healed me. During convalescence, after a severe illness, I visited Lahiri Mahasaya in Banaras. Sir, I said, I have been very sick and have lost many pounds. I see, Yukteswar, you made yourself unwell, and now you think you are thin. This reply was far from the one I had expected. My guru, however, added encouragingly, Let me see. I'm sure you ought to feel better tomorrow. My receptive mind accepted his words as a hint that he was secretly healing me. 
The next morning, I sought him out and exclaimed exultingly, Sir, I feel much better today. Indeed, today you invigorate yourself. No, master, I protested. It is you who have helped me. This is the first time in weeks that I have had any energy. Oh, yes, your malady has been quite serious. Your body is frail yet. Who can say how it will be tomorrow? The thought of a possible return of my weakness brought me a shudder of cold fear. The following morning, I could hardly drag myself to Lahiri Mahasaya's home. Sir, I am ailing again. My guru's glance was quizzical. So, once more you indispose yourself. My patience was exhausted. Guru Deva, I said, I realize now that day by day you have been ridiculing me. I don't understand why you disbelieve my truthful reports. Really, it's been your thoughts that have made you feel alternately weak and strong. My guru looked at me affectionately. You have seen how your health has exactly followed your self-conscious expectations. Thought is a force, even as electricity and gravitation. The human mind is a spark of the almighty consciousness of God. I could show you that whatever your powerful mind believes very intensely would instantly come to pass. This quote reminds me that the thoughts I choose to focus on determine the reality I'm living in. Choose your thoughts, choose your destiny, and find your voice.